Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to the District of Wonders. How is it out in the neighborhood tonight? I've been in here most of the day, staying dark, staying cool. We had a bit of a break in the weather this past week. You never can tell, though. It's still August, and August can turn on you, turn on a dime, any time. So, how is it? There was a game at Wrigley Field this afternoon. Cubs and... The Colorado Rockies? Anyway, the neighborhood is full of blue people. Cubs blue. People wearing blue, smeared with blue, dyed blue. Well, they're not all terrifying. They will be in a few hours, so when you leave here, be aware. Beware blue. Well, let's see now. Are you settled? Do you have something pleasant to drink? Something salty to munch? Peanuts, Cracker Jack? Are you comfortable? Good. Let's get past the necessaries first. First, we'd love for you to stop by iTunes when you've listened to something that gets you chilled and twitterpated and, and rave about us in the reviews. It really does help. Draws people to the nook, gets them listening, gets them talking. So, next... Now, uh, we can be familial here. We can speak in a familiar shorthand, yes? We need you. Yes, you're here now, but we need stories from you, need your voices. We need your ten terrifying minutes, in exchange for which you will become world-famous like that. Ah, uh, well, that's right. There are probably new people here tonight, so let me go back and explain. 
authors, send your terrifying stories to us, the ones you'd like us to read here in the Nook. Previously published, that's fine. Send them to... You got your pens poised? Okay. Send them to Tales to Terrify at gmail.com. Anything from short shorts to about 9,000 words. Usual submission formatting. Put submission in the subject line. If you'd like to be one of our readers, record about five minutes or so of some horrific tale you really like, and which you think will show your voice and your personality to its best advantage. Clean it up, cut the flubs, the heavy breathing, unless flubs and heavy breathing are part of the tale, as well they might be. Get rid of the gasps, the curses, unless curses and gasps are part of the tale, as well they might be. You get the idea. Make it clean, neat. Then send it to us, tales to terrify at gmail dot com. Put narrator audition in the subject line. And if you've got a book, a story, or whatever out there in the world, and you'd like us to air ten terrifying minutes of it, just record it, clean it up as you would if you were auditioning, and send it to. The same place. Put ten terrifying minutes in the subject line, and a few more necessaries. We would love for you to stop by the website, make a donation. Just go, choose an amount, and click. We'd love for you to leave a note. Let us know what you think, what you've liked, what you'd like down the road. We'd love for you to tell your friends to go to Facebook and like our site. We would love for you to buy Tales to Terrify Volume One when it comes out in October. It will have stories by Gene Wolfe, Joe Lansdale, Martin Munt, Weston Oaks, Christopher Fowler, John Shirley, and many, many others, including myself. And do not forget: now we are four, four neighborhoods in the District of Wonders. There's the mothership. The Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa with Captain Tony C. Smith on the bridge. There are the two new towns just around the proverbial bend, Crime City Central with Inspector Jack Calverly, and Protecting Project Pulp with Doctor Dave Robison, leading you into the seamy, steamy world of murder and mystery, and luring you away to high adventure and dropping you into hideous dangers. So, does that cover it all? I think so. For now, and so, for now, we'll begin. A few weeks ago, Kevin Lucia began what I called Horror One Hundred and One. He introduced himself and spun out a few threads of what he'll be discussing in coming months. Tonight, he is back with the first full class of the fall semester, and here. Is Kevin? Welcome to this month's edition of Horror One Hundred and One, as it's been dubbed here at Tales of Terrify. For this installment, we're going to look at the early Gothic novel and something called the Numinous Experience, as theorized by German theologian Rudolf Otto. But first, I'd like to give a little clarification, also hinging back on our first episode and some questions that arose out of that broadcast. What I'm offering here, by no means, is a complete survey of all horror literature. 
Um, what I'm offering is my exploration of its history, my thoughts, my feelings, my responses, my opinions, and I kind of offer them for your perusal. There are probably a lot of you out there who have already read some of these things, so these, this stuff is not going to be new to you, not going to be any surprise. What I'm really trying to target is folks that, for me, like, like myself for many years, had a very shallow reading selection when it came to horror. And again, for me, growing up, I didn't really encounter a lot of this stuff just based on circumstance, location, geography. I lived in a very small town. We actually didn't have our own library. Uh, had a very simple life. Had a Baptist upbringing, which by no means was, was as restrictive as it could be. I don't have any horror stories of being raised in a terribly restrictive religious home by any means. But because of that, really wasn't uh, didn't encounter a lot of horror. Um, Ironically enough, a lot of my teachers did not assign Edgar Allan Poe, really, uh, for some reason. In fact, my first exposure to Edgar Allan Poe was through my father, the, uh, the good Baptist deacon, who uh, one summer he took me aside and said, you know, Kevin, you're a really avid reader, you read a lot, but I, I think it's time you start reading some serious stuff. And his version of serious stuff, this was the summer after my seventh grade year, he gave me his um, James Feminor Cooper Leatherstocking Tales, and his collection of Edgar Allan Poe. I read The Pit and the Pendulum and the, uh, of course, the uh, the Telltale Heart, all those things for the very first time. Um, and I thought they were really cool. But I just didn't really, well, I read a lot. I read a lot and I didn't really land in one place. All my friends were athletes, so they didn't even read much, period. Much less be horror fans. Um, probably the only genre influences I had were, don't laugh everyone, The Hardy Boys, which to this day I'll stand by, Frank and Joe loved him. And has anyone ever read those scary stories to tell by the campfire by Alvin Schwartz? Now, those were pretty good, especially the illustrations. And that was probably really the first time I remember reading those and being really creeped out, but thinking, wow, I really kind of like this. This is pretty neat. Um, also, there was a cartoon uh, that was very strange. It was an animated cartoon. It was a kind of a Conan-ish, in-space, fantasy-type thing called Black Star. And now, looking back, it has a very Lovecraftian vibe to it. That was a weird show. If you YouTube it, Black Star. It was an interesting, interesting uh, show. Other than that, I think the only horror I ever encountered was um, by my senior year, I had a friend that would smuggle me tapes because by the time I was a senior, they had this new thing called HBO. And, well, it had been new for a couple of years, but uh, he videotaped several episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, and I remember in one instance, very vividly, this uh, episode that had Don Rickles, and his like hand was a demon, you know, under a ventriloquist dummy, which was, it was really kind of scary. Um, but that was it. You know, I was really a sci-fi guy for a real long time. Did not come to horror until my late 20s, and again, Binghamton is not that big of a city, so when I started exploring horror... This was when the internet was in its infancy. So I didn't have a computer. I didn't have access to the internet. And for me, the thought of going on the internet and typing in horror fiction, I used the internet when I had research something for class. It wasn't really something I thought about a lot. And here in Binghamton, we had a Barnes Noble. So when I wanted horror, I was directed, you know, oh, look, Stephen King. So, and, and I'm not dissing them by any means because Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, John Saul, they were all foundational for me. They were the first works of literature that I read in the horror genre, but that was it. It was only the last five or six years that I've tried to diversify. So I just wanted to kind of put that out as a clarification. That That's just how I've come to horror.
So as we start here looking at the the uh, genre of gothic fiction, I have to highly recommend anyone interested in the horror genre, whether you're a writer, a filmmaker, just to, or just you, it's your your genre of choice for entertainment, to pick up the philosophy of horror by theorist Noel Carroll. Basically, what he tries to do is is and this may be a little bit of an arrogant claim, but he feels that like Aristotle with poetics, was trying to give a defense of poetry and, and drama and theater and tragedy especially, he was trying to give a defense, a scholarly defense for the existence of the horror genre. And it, it's an excellent work for many reasons. Now, I do have to preface this, though. If you have a deep philosophical background, which I don't, you know, if you... Uh, are well read in the areas of philosophy. Maybe, maybe Noel Carroll might not be for you. I know um, my philosophy professor, my film and philosophy professor, and I, we parted ways on Noel Carroll. You know, obviously, I loved him for what he did with horror here and the comprehensive look that he offers. Um, and I loved the way that he just provoked ideas and thoughts. On a theorist level, my professor took issue with him on several several things. So if you if you're an experienced a reader of philosophy and criticism. But if you're just a horror fan or a horror writer or a fan of movies or horror movies and books, it's an excellent work because what he does is he really tries to pinpoint why it's been so persistent. Why is horror, the horror genre, not only survive, but in many ways thrive. Um, I'm not saying that I agree with every assertion he makes. He's very hinged on horror having to have a monster in the story, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. But I will say that he just does an excellent job of laying things out there for you provoking a lot of thought. But uh, early on in the book, he talks about gothic fiction. And he pinpoints that, as a lot of people do, uh, as the start. If we could trace horror novels back to something, we could trace it back to gothic fiction. I think we could probably trace it back even further when you're talking about myths and legends. You know, I think I referenced Beowulf in my last podcast. I would like to do a podcast specifically on folktales, especially when I think about the the Brothers Grimm tales. Um, Those are myths and legends, stories passed on by oral tradition. When you're talking about things that have a definitive author, who wrote this they pinpoint gothic fiction. And for the purpose of this broadcast and the next several broadcasts, because Gothic fiction is huge. You know, even when I sat down and started planning this and looking at this, I was thinking, I could read for the next year and never cover all the works of Gothic fiction. So, for our purposes, I'm going to try and find works that I think stand out or are representative. You really kind of raise a flag and say, here's something specific in the Gothic genre. And Noel Carroll lays out a nice little plan that I think I'm going to follow with these podcasts is he breaks, and he's using other people's work, obviously. You know, he's not making this stuff up himself. He breaks gothic fiction down into four categories. Historical gothic, natural and explained gothic, supernatural gothic, and equivocal gothic. Now, historical gothic, we're not going to deal with that at all. Historical gothic is a tale in the imagined past has no supernatural. So maybe it happens in a castle, and it's barren, and there's a single governess who's being pressured to marry for things like political reasons, but there's absolutely no supernatural element whatsoever, historical gothic. And again, I'm being very, I apologize, I'm being very glib uh, and playing fast and loose with some of these terms, but again, I could probably do an hour-long podcast and still not cover all this material. Next, he uh, uh, explained the natural and explained gothic, as a story that starts out with mysterious supernatural events, but eventually they're all explained in the end. 
a good example of this is, is a novel that I'm reading right now that I hope to report to you uh, next time, The Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe. It definitely falls in that natural explained Gothic category. Then he uh, talks about the equivocal Gothic, which the equivocal Gothic novel renders the supernatural as ambiguous by means of a psychologically disturbed character. So in other words, at the end of the story, it's not explained to us. We're like, was our character mad? Or was there really a ghost? A really good example of how this trait has continued on down through the line is the fact that Noel Carroll says you could say that the uncanny and fantastic tales of dread have developed from the equivocal gothic novel. You know, a lot of those stories, a lot of Twilight, Twilight Zone episodes that we watched where at the end we're like, wait, what happened there? And a really good example of a novel that I just read recently, published by Cemetery Dance, called Ghost by Christopher Ransom, again, plays with that equivocal gothic idea that our character is psychologically, we get the idea that our character is psychologically disturbed, he's traumatized, is he experiencing these supernatural events for real, or is it an offshoot from his his, uh, psychological trauma? The final category, of course, supernatural gothic, that is where the gothic novel develops from. And the novel that I'll be talking about today, The Castle of Entranto by Horace Walpole, is a good example of that um, of that novel. One thing that also provides some more thought for all these categories is a definition kind of of horror, um, kind of a discernment between two facets of horror uh, made by Anne Radcliffe in an essay on horror. And if there's anyone listening who actually has that essay or knows where to find it, I probably just need to look harder. Uh, I've, it's been very often quoted in large paragraphs. I can't seem to actually find the whole essay. But she makes a really nice discernment in her essay between terror and horror. In that terror is that dreadful anticipation of something happening. Whereas horror is a feeling of revulsion after it's happened. So you can see how those play out in these three gothic uh, branches here. In natural and explained gothic, uh, a natural explained gothic novel, the novel's tension is entirely built on this terror, where there's the anticipation. By the end of the novel, everything's explained away or given rational explanation, so we don't have the horror in that novel. Now, an equivocal gothic novel, depending on how intensely the novel or work ends, we may not necessarily be left with, a, with horror. We may be left with a quiet, creeping sense of dread, which it may be a leap to connect that to quiet horror in the works of Charles Grant and T.M. Wright and Ramsey Campbell. But you can see that, you know, you read Ramsey Campbell's short story, and at the end you're like, Why, was, was the guy insane, or was he really haunted? So you can see how that strain continues. The supernatural gothic, however, uh, according to uh, Noel Carroll and some others, say that that's where the terror and the horror is fully fleshed out. That's where we get the horror novel. A really good example of that, another novel that I'm hoping to report back to you on next time, is The Monk by Matthew Lewis, which uh, all the descriptions I've come across it, is supposed to have both that terror and that horror. And willy-nilly supernatural demonish things happening throughout the whole book. In fact, Noel Carroll went so far as to say the monk is kind of a linchpin. Yes, the castle of a Toronto is that first story with supernatural elements that haunt, but the monk is kind of a linchpin toward something a little bit more graphic, a little bit more disturbing. 
So let's talk about The Castle of Entranto by Horace Wapool. This we can fit into the supernatural uh, gothic novel, and we'll give you a little breakdown here. Essentially, The Castle of Entranto. We have Manfred, Prince of Entranto, and he wants to marry his son Conrad off to Isabella. It's a political union to solidify his base there as the rightful heir of Entranto, which, which seems to be an element in a lot of these gothic fictions is heritage, lineage, family names, rightful inheritance. It's a really big one. Um, again, I may reference this next time, but a really good example, modern example of that, would be um, uh, a novel by Robert McCammon, um, Usher's Passing. He takes on you know the uh, fall of the House of Usher, and yes, it's a horror novel, but huge in that novel is heritage and family lineage, lineage and the handing down of things. So here we have an arranged marriage to solidify the prince's uh, you know, rule there in Toronto. And then, very beginning, this tragic accident where this statue, or the helmet of a statue, mysteriously falls and kills Conrad right before the wedding. Um, and everyone's, obviously, not a way to start off your, your, uh, your nuptials, especially when Isabella, not really sure if she was in love with Conrad because it was an arranged marriage. Um, Mad Fred kind of loses it. And this is another interesting thing I'm finding a lot of, a lot of these gothic novels is that male, threatening male figure. Even if there's no supernatural event in the end, there's a threatening male figure a lot of times that is uh, pressuring the female or threatening her. And he is uh, kind of loses it a little bit because this was his key to solidifying his rule. So he decides, I'm going to divorce my wife and marry Isabella. That'll work out. Isabella disagrees, and Isabella flees and hides in a convent. Um, now, throughout the whole work, um, we have bleeding statues, ghostly apparitions of fathers and grandfathers, warning Manfred, and Manfred's taking all these things, are these an omen from heaven or hell? Should I continue doing this? We have a monk who suddenly has a hidden son, and we tried to hide him away for all these years. Um, and one of the things that's really prevalent in this novel is that the haunting in the supernatural element is very religious. Um, Manfred keeps coming back throughout the whole work, and a lot of people also, too, are telling him, see, Manfred, see that tear, that, uh, that statue bleeding, you know, have tears of blood. Obviously, God has not approved of your marrying Isabella. So this is this constant refrain throughout the whole novel that God has condemned this. Divine forces are working against you, Manfred. You're not listening. So they're going to keep upping the ante throughout the whole, the whole work. Um, and by the end of the book, things are wrapped up. Manfred eventually gives in. He eventually gives in. And he and his wife end up going to a convent themselves, and he, he relinquishes his rule um, in the face of these escalating... You know, there's a, a vision at the end of this big giant, you know, ghost thing at the end of the book that convinces him that he's on the wrong path. Um, and it's very interesting because uh, Noel Carroll also cites... Uh, Rudolf Otto, he's a German theologian, he developed it, uh, the theory of the numinous dread. And again, I'm kind of paraphrasing here. You can find breakdowns of this online. If you were to ta- type in Otto and the numinous, you're going to find these things uh, all, all over the net. And basically, numinous dread is the idea that 
we have this sense of the divine and that we are in fear of it, but we fear it because we know it's bigger than us, it's larger than us, it, it, we're... We uh, tremble in awe before and fall down on our knees. Um, a little bit different than something threatening us physically and might kill us, but it's something that we know is not based on knowledge or rationality or anything like that. But you know, how many times, if, if you've read the Bible or read any religious stories, how many times are characters falling to their knees, you know, burying their face in the ground you know, because of the, the, the overwhelming awe in the face of this? Here in this novel, this is very important. This sense of the religious, this sense of God is condemning you, so you're going to be haunted by ghosts and visions of your relatives and bleeding statues until you turn, which Manfred does by the end of the book. So we start off our examination of the Gothic novel with this idea of the supernatural being very religious, very divine. Certainly not a, a trait throughout all works, but I just I found with The Castle of Toronto, that's what we have, is one of the primary uh, elements of this novel. How is the novel itself as read? Well, again, not to give a glib book review, it is not quite Victorian age novel yet, Obviously, the prose is much heavier. As far as the dialogue, they're not separated on different lines. They run back and forth, uh, back to back, the dialogue does. And it's very exposition heavy, very exposition heavy when it comes to reading. But it's also interesting, the tone. The tone of the novel, it's almost as if at this point, Walpole is winking at us, and maybe, again, I'm accessing it from a very modern standpoint where today we have so many authors that are so excellent at, at invoking tone and different types of voices. The tone of the novel is almost as if Walpole is not intending any of us to take this seriously whatsoever. It, it, not even necessarily to scare us. It, so we don't really find it frightening. There are certainly all these supernatural elements there, and again, I'm speaking across generations of divide, and I, I, I've seen horror movies with people dismembered, so I guess probably my and today's threshold probably would find it not necessarily that frightening, but there's something even the tone in itself. It's, I'm looking for the word. I want to know if it's a dramatic flair or very bombastic, or this is very like, if you're thinking of somebody overacting is the best thing I can think of, and overacting throughout the whole work. It's almost like that's what this novel is doing at this stage. It's overacting. It's not expecting any of us to take it seriously. And I found that to be very, very interesting. What little I've read so far, though, of The Monk and in uh, The Mysteries of Adolfo, much more developed narrative, which we'll, we'll continue on next time. Where can you find The Castle in Toronto? Well, like a lot of the um, a lot of the classic works of fiction, you can get them free uh, for your Amazon wireless. Um, I'm currently working with this on a an Oxford collection, Oxford University Press, of collection of four Gothic novels. It has the Castle of Toronto, Vathek, the Monk, and Frankenstein in one collection, so you can get those easily online. In closing, I think this is what I'm going to do in closing for every broadcast as we're nearing the end here. Um, if anyone has any suggestions or thoughts, especially we're going to, I'm going to say over the next four, four broadcasts, we're going to look at the development of the Gothic novel. My end point, I think, is going to be works like Turn of the Screw by Henry James and The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, because that's the Gothic novel ushered into the modern era. But if anyone has any suggestions of things that I've overlooked, things that I've missed, goodness, things that I've even gotten wrong, please feel free 
to uh, to contact me at my website, www.kevinlucci.com. My email's in the sidebar there. Shoot me an email if you have a work that you think that I should look at, if you have uh, some point you think that I've overlooked or even if I've gotten wrong and I can offer a retraction next time. You know, so maybe we can try to... To, to produce some interaction um, between listeners of the show and myself. Try to create this a little bit more dynamic. So I think I'll do this every single time. Again, remind you of my email. And I'm going to be looking at next time The Monk by Matthew Lewis and um, The Mysteries of Adolfo by uh, Anne Radcliffe, really focusing on the natural and explained Gothic and the supernatural Gothic with, in this case, uh, in The Monk, uh, a uh, emphasis on the grotesque and, and a little bit more shocking work. And that's what I plan on doing next time. I thank you for listening and uh, welcome any comments or emails. Thanks, Kevin. Because I've always encouraged people to seek the fetchings of that which they love, I hate to admit it, but I had never read The Castle of Otranto. So thank you, Kevin, for dragging me to that hideous helm fallen into the courtyard. I liked it. As he said, the language is a bit plummy, but what really popped into focus for me as I read is that sense of the religious. So much of horror fiction, so many of the standard tropes, ghosts, vampires, demons, reanimation as suggested by, say, Frankenstein, so much of what lies under the surface of the terror in our stories is that sense of a larger universe out there, of a world beyond ours, a sense of the religious that lies behind the dark shadows. What is a ghost, after all, but a soul, unfulfilled, unshriven? And what is a soul but a piece of... Well, a piece of what? There's the question. Kevin Lucia is a contributing editor for Shroud magazine. He blogs for The Midnight Diner, his short fiction has appeared in several anthologies. He is currently finishing his creative writing master's degree at Binghamton University. He teaches high school English, and he lives in Castle Creek, New York, with his wife and children. Kevin is the author of Hiram Grange and the Chosen One, book four of the Hiram Grange Chronicles, and is currently working on his first novel. Fiction Anyone out there, out in the dark, a fan of baseball? Probably. I suppose if I am a fan of any sport, and, and I'm not sure I am, it would be baseball. It's not the playing that attracts me. No game really does. But the notion of the game, ah, the notion of the game, the outline of it, the game's time, it's not in periods, quarters, or minutes. A baseball game could go on forever so long as no one team has more runs than the other after the ninth inning. Read W.P. Kinsella's The Iowa Baseball Confederacy for a fantastical exploration of that notion. Kinsella's the guy, by the way, who wrote Shoeless Joe, the basis for Field of Dreams. But baseball is a game that exists in talk. The talk among the players, the crowd... The memories each moment inspires. The discussion the memories invoke. It lives in the magic of numbers and the contemplation of numbers. The size of the playing area, 
No limits are mandated except for the distance between the bases and from the pitcher's mound to home plate. There are no definitions. The outfield, well, except for the convenience of putting the crowds somewhere or the need to have a building or a cornfield out somewhere in the world beyond home plate, the baselines could spread to infinity. Yeah, baseball is a kind of magic. It seems to grow from the alley dust and summer-soft asphalt of city streets, or it arises from the soil of small towns, words, memories, time, and distance. Baseball. So, have a listen to Mark Rigney's Called on Account. Called on Account by Mark Rigney On hot summer nights in any other Great Plains town, people gather outside, sit on their porches, hold picnics and barbecues. In Gibson, what's left of it, the remaining inhabitants shutter their windows and cower, hiding indoors. They've been doing this since 1982, the year that all those who had the means or opportunity packed their bags and moved away. 1982, the year they bulldozed the baseball stands and dug up the field. It should have been a good year. Instead, it was the year that Frank McCann, the town barber, and my father destroyed the town with his voice. 1982, my father turned 55 on the opening day of the high school baseball season. It was like a sign from above, a promise of good things to come for that was the year he was finally able to combine his two great loves, baseball and Jesse. Jesse, otherwise known as Fastball McCann, was my younger brother, and the spring of 1982 was the season that he took over as the premier ace pitcher for our beloved Gibson Cardinals, giving my father the unique opportunity to not only do the play-by-play of the games, an unpaid job he'd more or less owned for 23 years, but to do Jesse proud in the process. As the season wound down and graduation neared, the Cardinals led the league by three games, and Jesse had pitched flawlessly, inning after inning after unsullied inning. From on high in the wooden broadcast booth, scarlet and black, and decorated with a Cardinal's head looking fierce enough to best an eagle, my father all but crowed as he bellowed, Strike! One pitch after another. My father loved me too, in his way, but I wasn't the athlete in the family. I had pronating feet, thick glasses, a tendency to develop bad acne just in time for significant public occasions. Jesse was the kind of athlete a whole town could fall in love with, and Gibson did. That's why his death was such a shock. My father had the quintessential American face, strong and square, at ease in the lot at the farmer's co-op, but helplessly befuddled when handed any drink that even hinted of a tropical umbrella. He played Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in the barbershop and hummed along with the sort of tuneless indifference that only the tone-deaf could master. He had a knack for getting people to talk. Perhaps it goes with the profession. He'd ease a customer into his chair, drape and wrap the smock and get the essentials out of the way with an offhand, What can we do for you today? Just shorten her up, Frank. 
You know what I like. Don't skin me and we'll all be happy. He had a captive audience and a practice segue. Well, Ken, or William, or Delbert, or Al, or whomever it was that day, that hour. Well, Ken, how have you been getting on? Ken and William and Delbert and Al, they talked of this, of that, of themselves, of others. Gibson was never a large town, it's smaller now, and every man and boy got their hair cut by Frank. It's a popular lie that women are the world's superior gossips, but Frank and Frank McCann's barbershop are proof that men can jaw with the best. By the time Jesse took the mound for the opening of the 1982 season, Frank knew just about everything there was to know about just about everyone. He even knew a few things that shouldn't have been known at all. There is such a thing as sharing too much. No one with a nickname like Fastball is supposed to die, and the town really did call him that. Adults and kids, peers and teachers, everybody. He was a fearsome wide receiver, great off the boards in basketball, a light touch on the putting green, but up on the mound, he could do no wrong. <sighs> Another perfect pitch. He made baseball sizzle. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. The broadcast booth's public address system buzzed and rattled to life after every pitch. The PA was perpetually on its final static-filled legs, 
but Frank's solid baritone somehow made it feel warm, homey, even reassuring. Imagine being on the mound, winding up, releasing like a well-oiled machine and sinking another immaculate slider thump into the catcher's mitt. Imagine your own father giving the satisfied home field benediction, STRIKE THREE! Were Jesse's teammates jealous? They certainly had good cause. Matty Colson, the catcher, he was pretty good. He had to be to deal with Jesse. But Fenton Garber and Clay Bousset and Chuck Diggs and the rest, they were run-of-the-mill. They had enough combined talent to get some hits, but they weren't anything like Fastball McCann, and they knew it. The team liked to go swimming after practice. It was a tradition stretching back generations, and with Mather Creek just behind the fields, it was an easy ritual to continue. Mather Creek wasn't exactly warm in spring, but by late April, with the floods receding, the team usually managed to goad and dare itself into several grand, collective jumps from the muddy, overhanging bank. Spoosh! Twenty half-dressed teenage boys make a mighty thunder when they hit deep water all at once. They make even more of a din when they break the surface, caterwauling and whooping, flinging water from their hair, and screaming just because they can. Nineteen boys make almost as much noise as twenty. The difference, to the average, happy, exuberant ear, is simply too small to note. Or so the team claimed when in late May, with spring expanding into summer and graduation just around summer's humid corner, twenty boys leaped into the water and only nineteen came back up. Did someone kick him? Did someone hold him under? The team closed ranks and refused to say anything more than what they could all agree on. They'd been swimming for maybe ten minutes when Blake Freytag, the right fielder, thought to ask where fastball was. They found him seconds later, floating shoulder blades to the sky, right in the middle of the pack. "'Jesus Christ!' breathed someone, and then they scattered, heading for shore as if the creature from the Black Lagoon had risen in their midst." The fire department and two sheriffs dragged my brother out of the water. The coroner in Springfield ruled it was a drowning, pure and simple. No blows to the head, no toxins, nothing overtly suspicious. Nothing, that is, except for nineteen fellow swimmers who'd suddenly forgotten how to count to twenty. My father had been good at many things in his time, but mourning was not among them. Perhaps if my mother had still been around it would have been easier, but she'd been gone for years, no one knew where. Marriage, the other major league skill at which my father had failed. That left me as the nearest, best shoulder to cry on, but I was away at seminary, the first McCann to ever push past high school, and by the time I flew home, my father had sown his sorrow, and his anger, so far up inside himself that he had no need of me, or my attempts at more authoritative comfort. Keep God out of it, he told me. God had an obligation to prevent this. And he struck out. Jesse died on a Tuesday. That Friday, the day after the funeral, the Badgers of West Lincoln trundled into town. It would have been Jesse's game to win. It was still my father's game to call. The whole town turned out. Everyone wanted to be there for Jesse and for my father. Most came armed with a story to tell. Stories that began and ended with Jesse. They offered them up as if they were medicine a kind of collective balm, but Frank turned away. He retreated to the booth as soon as decorum would allow. Once there, he hunkered down behind the microphone and queued up Centerfield with Star-Spangled Banner on deck and ready to go. 
As the music shrilled, he glared through the glass and down at the full to bursting stands. He glared at the bill caps and satin jackets, the hot dogs and sodas, the volleys of reflexive smiles and handshakes as neighbor greeted neighbor. The home team cardinals warmed up on the gleaming emerald field, each and every mother's son concentrating like mad on avoiding even a glance at the fury in the black and scarlet broadcast booth. The game began with the Cardinals at bat and, as if Jesse's death had offered genuine inspiration, they tallied four hits in a run. By the third inning, they had a 5-1 to one lead. The crowd grew raucous, sensing not just a win but a blowout. In the seventh inning, West Lincoln staged a comeback. They got two quick runs, and the Cardinal coaches sent junior Holly Kern to the mound. Holly had been one of my brother's special favorites, and while they had never been friends precisely, they had always worked well in their respective roles as mentor and disciple. That night, Holly Kern promptly threw out a slow, sporific curveball that the West Lincoln batter easily converted into a spectacular home run. The score now read Gibson 5, West Lincoln 6. Up next, number 17 for the Badgers, Clyde Felser. Two balls, one strike, nobody on. Three balls, no strikes, runners on first and second. Bases loaded, still top of the seventh, no strikes. Come on, Holly, what are you doing? Holly gaped up at the broadcast booth, too surprised to be offended. Had Jesse's dad just said that? Let's go, boy. Pitch me a fastball. Holly looked to Maddie Coulson behind home plate, but Maddie was clearly signaling for a sinker. Holly blinked and tried to summon a solid windup, but when the ball came out, it was so wide that the umpire nearly forgot to make the call. Bases loaded, no outs, and we've got God knows what on the mound. Come on, Holly. Show me a Jesse. The crowd shifted, restless. The ice cubes in their sodas rattled like bones in their hands. Holly! Come on, Frank! A gruff voice called from the stands. Let the kid pitch! Yeah! called a second man. What's Holly ever done to you? Frank laughed, and the old manorial speakers quivered in their fixtures. I don't know what all Holly's done, he said. But I know what you've been doing, Carl. I know what you're growing out there in the old back 40. On the mound, Holly froze. The last hint of conversation in the stands rustled to a halt. But since we're talking about you, Holly, when are you going to tell your parents about all those glossy magazines you keep up in the air vents? Jesse told me you've got quite a collection. The baseball rolled out of Holly's limp fingers and flopped to the mound. It lay on the dusty brown soil like a dead thing. Jeff Colson stood up, Maddie's father. Frank, how about you come on out of there and I'll buy you a drink? We'll let someone else call the game. I don't drink with pedophiles. Jeff Colson shielded his eyes in an attempt to see past the glare of the booth's wide glass windows. Frank, he said, let's get you home. How old was he, Jeff? That kid from Springer County. Nine? Ten? I bet he remembers. And I bet he's old enough to start talking. Jeff blanched, and the people around him shifted their weight, withdrawing ever so slightly. The umpire, an out-of-towner named Marsby, 
tried to step in, but when he shouted, Let's play ball! Frank laughed again. <laughs> sure, let's have a friendly game of catch. Better yet, let's play hot potato. Who's next? Trudy. Trudy Welch. Is that you down front? Hey, I hope you don't mind my asking, but are you still sleeping with Susan whenever Mike's away? He does know, doesn't he? People were milling toward the exits by now, herding together in clumps and shaking their heads, muttering, resisting the urge to cast sidelong glances up at the booth. Frank's voice kept right on, ringing down both sinner and sin. Carol Hunt! Still picking all your neighbor's best flowers? I know, such a small transgression, so minor. But if it's so minor, how come you do it at two in the morning when you think no one's looking? On the field, the Gibson players exchanged edgy, skittish glances and wondered as one whether they should play on or simply break and run. Without any orders from their coaches to guide them, they simply held their positions Eight young men in pinstriped uniforms, red caps forced low on their heads, their faces twitching in the glare of the lights. In the stands, Gibson High's principal, Al Hurley, decided to take charge. He fought his way up the bleachers, plowing through a sea of fans headed for the exit. Frank, that's enough! he yelled. Turn off that mic and shut up! Can't, Al. Not with people like you out in the world, stealing people's lives. Maybe you should share a bit, Al. Tell us how this identity theft stuff really works. I'd like to know myself, because I sure could use a spiffy new in-ground pool. Hmm, one like yours, maybe. Al Hurley was a big man, and not easily cowed. He reached the top level of the bleachers, and marched to the booth's single door. He would have charged inside, a bull in a very small shop, but Frank had locked himself in. Open the door, Frank! Does your daughter still babysit, Al? She never filed charges against Will Busey, but that's understandable. If it came down to her word versus his, I think a jury would tend to side with the chief of police, don't you? Al Hurley couldn't help himself. His head swiveled around to pick out William Busey's crew cut from what was left of the outbound crowd. Busey met Al's eyes for half a second, and then he ducked his head, he looked away, and on the field, Greg Busey flung down his mitt and raced off the field. Ah, too bad, Will. Looks like Greg knew all along. Al returned his attention to Frank. He backed up as far as the descending bleacher steps would allow and got a running start at the booth door. He slammed his shoulder into the wood, but the door wouldn't budge. Hey, Sharla! Frank yelled. Sharla Hawkbine! Yes, you! You know I'm talking to you! Don't leave yet! I want to know, next time I bring my car into Don's shop, how many extra parts is he going to stick in there? Are you too sure that I need that new axle? On his fifth try, Al Hurley smashed the door in. By then, he wasn't alone. A half dozen of the town's most defiant men had joined him, each one ready to beat Frank senseless if necessary. They surged inside, intent on separating Frank from the microphone come hell or high water. Instead, they did nothing. There was nothing left to do except get away because Frank lay sprawled across the floor, 
His chair tumbled sideways and his mouth gaping wide from what they later surmised must have been a massive heart attack. He still clutched the microphone in his unconscious fingers, but his face was aimed away, toward the wall, and not the faintest trace of sound escaped his throat. Al Hurley and the men with him didn't flee because they'd found Frank McCann dead. They fled because Frank's disembodied voice continued its harangue from the grandstand speakers, hurling one malevolent accusation after another into the black night air. Zeke, don't go! Elroy's been missing for how long? Four years? I'll bet my bottom dollar you fed the body to the hogs. You know a pig'll eat anything, right, Zeke? No, hold on there, Maddie. Don't give up on the game so soon. Keep the team together, boy! If you win, you'll get, I don't know, how many girls tonight? One? Maybe four? Is it fun passing out herpes like it's a Valentine's card? The voice grew deeper. It boomed and billowed through the air like a cannonade. What people remained were really running now, but the stands, old and rickety, only had two proper exits. One along the first baseline, one along third, and as my neighbors scratched and shoved, fought and clawed their way toward the freedom of the parking lot and the safety of the town's wide blacktop streets, Frank's voice raged at their backs, attacking their families, their friends, their every little dalliance and failure, and it did so with absolute, unerring conviction. Lowell Peters, look me in the eye. Tell me you've never planted evidence. Tell me Daniel Foyle is in prison for a reason. Tell me anything. Tell me the truth. Or better yet, tell me lies. Because I'm getting the distinct impression that the truth hurts your collective ears. Where are you going? Where are you running? You, Simon Nicole. Does your wife know about the new insurance policy? Does she? The voice howled. It rose and fell in a fever of volume and bile. The kids from West Lincoln scurried into their bus and zoomed away, the double-set tires churning gravel. The home team was already long gone, and the stands stood vacant. Frank's voice screamed across the roofs and oaks and out across the shadowed fields, a horrid judge, loud as Vulcan's hammer. I heard it then, from my father's home, where I'd been avoiding the game and anything else to do with baseball and Jesse. I'd been reading C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, but once the voice penetrated the walls, I put the book aside and I rose, I opened the windows, and I listened. Distorted and angry as it was, I recognized the voice. I knew its owner. Or at least I'd known its original owner. Al Hurley, William Busey, and a clot of others, all but faceless in the dark beyond the porch light, they banged on the front door until I opened up. They hardly needed to explain. I knew what they wanted of me. I retrieved my Bible, and then I set off for the baseball field on foot. No one accompanied me. No one so much as volunteered, not even the other clergy in town, most of whom had been at the game to start with. I walked alone into a valley of impotent anger and hurt fury. Every petty frustration my father had ever endured suddenly flung forth in a torrent of bad feeling and abuse. I'd been told not to bother with the booth, that my father was dead, so I went instead to the mound, a place I'd never stood, not even an imitation of my able younger brother. I took the mound and faced the stands, the booth, the ugly gray speakers jutting from the roof line like mouths. I tried to think of what to say, 
but my heart was pounding, and as I hesitated, the voice paused and took note of me. Hmm, coming to take Jesse's place? Stop it, I said with what I hoped was the sort of forceful clarion delivery that I typically summoned only for Sunday worship. Whatever you are, let my father rest. The voice laughed, and the grass around me quivered as if hit by an unseen wind. <laughs> Say please, said the voice, impossibly full, a terrible snarl. Please, Daddy. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. The voice snickered. <laughs> is that where we are? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to heal, a time to keep silence. The voice shuddered with laughter. <laughs> and what about a time to break down, a time to rend, a time to hate? This town's so full of hate you can swim in it, and that's exactly what it's going to do from now on. I opened my Bible, intending to find the perfect passage to silence a demon, if demon it was but I think I knew even then that I lacked the proper weapons. The Bible is an advisor, not an arsenal. Its pages hold solace, not spears. So I stood mute, and the voice returned to its business of naming every name, cursing every folly, and pulling the town's soul out by the roots, one person at a time. By morning, no one had been spared, not even me. Clinton Arliss and his bulldozer crew arrived just before dawn. I watched from the trail leading down to Mather Creek as the giant dirt-yellow machines rammed the creaking baseball stands and reduced them, in less than twenty minutes, to a heap of splintered wood and twisted, wretched metal. As the last working speaker pitched forward and smashed into the ground, the voice gave out a final rasping scream and fell silent. I held my father's body against my chest and then set about dragging him the short remaining distance through the line of trees bordering the creek and up to the muddy banks beyond. I'd seen the bulldozers approaching, and I knew they wouldn't be stopping to retrieve my father. Who could blame them? So I had steeled myself and crept up to the booth, braving the noise, the storm of words, and I'd hauled my father out and away from the stands and on past the outfield. I doubted anyone in town would consent to bury the body, so I settled on what I hoped my father would have wanted, to join Jesse in the same murky waters where my brother had died, in the depths of Mather Creek. In the years since, I have had the distinct pleasure of leading three congregations of my own, and I have been witness to more than my share of blessed miracles. I like to think I have been helpful to others, a good minister, a kindness in times of trouble. But I linger still in 1982, in the spring, for in that season, more than any other, boys named Fastball are simply not allowed to die. But they do, of course. And when they do, heaven help us all. Mark Rigney is the author of Acts of God, published in Playscripts Incorporated, and Deaf Side Story, Deaf Sharks, Hearing Jets, and a Classic American Musical, 
from Gallaudet University Press. His plays have been performed in 19 states plus Canada, with Bears set to appear off-Broadway at 59E59 in March 2013 by way of Sans A Productions. Marks, a most unruly gnome, won the 2009 First Coast Novel Contest, and he's earned grants from the Indiana Arts Council and the Vogelstein Foundation. His short fiction has appeared in venues such as Black Static and Day Terrors, and will soon be found in Not One of Us and Realms of Fantasy. By the way, past careers for Mark include zookeeping, location sound recording, and serving as technical director for a college theater. His website, with links to many of his plays and original fiction, is www.markrigney.net. The narrator, for Called on Account, is Joe Sammarco. Joe's been here before, you remember him. He did Sins of the Living, then picked up John Shirley's unforgettable Isolation Point. Joe is a former Angelino who now lives in my old part of the world, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's 25 and an aspiring voice actor focusing on getting into animation or gaming. A proud geek, he calls himself, with a soft spot in his heart for fantasy and science fiction. Thanks again, Joe. And... One more thing. And I think you're going to like this thing. It is Ten Terrifying Minutes, from a new novel by pulp master B.C. Bell, author of The Bagman, and the hopefully soon-to-be-released The Bagman vs. the World. We've heard from Chris Bell before here in the Nook. His short story, How Pappy Got His Five Acres Back and Calvin Stayed on the Farm, was our main fiction piece read by Nathan Lowell way back in show number four. Tonight, Chris himself will read from his new novel, The Bipolar Express, now up on Kindle. I'll let him tell you about it. Chris? Our story thus far... Holt Dryvek, our not-so-heroic protagonist, is a dual-diagnosis psychiatric patient, meaning he's an alcoholic with mental problems. Holt has just come off a life-threatening bender, only to discover the magnetic poles are shifting. It's been explained to him that it happens once every 250,000 years, and we're 100,000 years overdue. This reality is hard for him to accept, but the city of Chicago is frozen in September. Communication and electric grids are down, and Chicago is one of Earth's seven magnetic hotspots, a mini North Pole. The city has been evacuated, almost. Some are still hiding out. Others have formed neighborhood gangs. Holt is still recovering from malnutrition and a lack of medication and the DTs bordering on alcoholic psychosis. Rescued by his friends, Jack and Wes, who just escaped from a mental institution, the three men have been breaking into houses and squatting overnight as they trek through the ice and snow on their way to Chicago's Loop. Jack and Wes have been at this particular game a little longer than Holt, but they are willing to teach him by making Holt perform his own very first breaking and entering. Bipolar Express. Chapter 14. After skulking around in an alley for a couple of blocks, Jack stopped and pointed at one of the houses. Okay, Holt, it's your turn. My turn? I looked at him questioning. You gotta start somewhere, man. Start? Yeah, by getting us in this house, he said, leaning up against a rotting fence post in back of a three-flat. Wes giggled. 
They were both kicking ice off their shoes like they were already inside. Whoa, you want me to commando a SWAT team raid like Wes did on that other house, I asked? There was no way, until they both stared me down. I would have argued if it hadn't have been so damn cold. Okay, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going in the front. I picked up a graying fence slat with a nail in it to use as a club. Looked like somebody might have used it for a weapon before. The nail looked like it might have been covered with blood. Jack and Wes looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders. Wes pointed at himself and then at the ground. He was staying right there and back. Jack grinned, turning his head side to side like he was babysitting a kid who wouldn't eat his vegetables. I was going in front alone. I crunched around the house up the snowdrift front steps and knocked on the door. I realized then why Jack had been turning his head. He knew I had no idea what I was doing. Why was I going in the front door? Manners? Trying to be polite? Well, yeah, sort of. I felt like if someone was home, I didn't want to scare them to death. It never occurred to me that I was making myself a target. Nobody answered. I knocked again. I could hardly hear Jack talking from the back of the house, but I distinctly remember the word stupid. The only time I'd ever kicked in a door in my life was when I was drunk and couldn't get into my apartment. Not that I remember doing it. It's just that I woke up on the floor and the door had been kicked in. I figured back then I must have done it because I never found my keys. But kicking in a door in conscious life is a lot harder. I thought I'd just boot it one or two times and it would fly open like in the media. Didn't work that way. I must have kicked that thing for 10 minutes, both feet. By the time it finally splintered, I knew why I'd passed out on the floor in my apartment that time. I was exhausted and covered in sweat under three layers of clothes and in sub-zero weather. I forced the door in the rest of the way, leaning my back against it, squeezing my way through. I popped out the other side, fell and hit the floor on my back, stunned. Something smelled funny. At first, I hoped it might be bad plumbing or something, but I realize now I'd known what it was all along. I'd smelled it before. I opened my eyes. This place hadn't been abandoned, or at least they hadn't taken the time to move anything out. Right above me was an antique roll-top desk, real wood, cubby holes and everything. On top of it was one of those green banker's lamps, a vase, and on the wall, a mirror shaped like a cross. It was the first place I'd seen with a clean floor in a while. Then the smell forced its way up my nose again. First time I'd ever smelled it was when my mom OD'd. Her rotting body had lain in the house for the better part of a week. The family had to put vinegar in bowls to kill the smell when we went inside. I had smelled it when the guy who lived next to me in an SRO hotel hung himself, and they found the bloated body in the closet two days swollen. They had to call in a specialty crime scene cleanup crew to make everything limony fresh that time. It was the same smell that had finally forced me to accept the fact that my wife was dead. I'd tried to ignore it going into the second day because part of me wanted to pretend she was still alive. I knew that stank all right. Part of me knew what it was, but I kept telling myself it was bad plumbing. Something moved upstairs. A light tapping sound. Not somebody walking, but maybe somebody trying to hide something or... Or maybe they dropped whatever they were hiding because the tapping went across the ceiling over my head. Adrenaline kicked in and I was upstairs fast, kicking the door down like it was balsa wood. I was hoping they were in that second floor bedroom. Whoever it was hadn't had a plan or time to do anything yet. Then I heard something growl. It hadn't been tapping. I figured out I'd lost the element of surprise about the same time I saw the dog chewing on my balls. Our eyes locked on each other and froze. I'd seen it leap, but 
Startled, all I did was stumble backwards and fall down, its jaws locked between my legs. The fence slat with the nail in it fell out of my grip and clattered on the floor behind me. Backpedaling on my hands out of sheer reflex, I dragged the dog along with me, its teeth locked in the fabric around my crotch. That's when I realized it was mostly fabric and not my crotch in its mouth. If I'd been wearing tighter pants, I'd be talking in falsetto. Backed up into the wall, I pitched from side to side, trying to find the damp fence slat or anything I could grab to defend myself. The dog just kept growling and chewing, and the entire time our eyes were fused. I couldn't stop staring into the cold, burning blue hell of that thing's eyes. The dog let go of the coat, rearing back on its haunches, all fur and fangs, and then lunged at my genitals again. It got some skin on the underside. I screamed, cringed back into the wall, covering my eyes with my hand so I didn't have to watch myself get disemboweled. Fear is a great motivator. Mine must be especially great because I think I scared the attack dog with all my screaming and flopping around. The fucking mutt just stopped and looked at me sideways, then it growled a little more, telling me to stay put, don't move too fast. Then this Big-ass clone job, shepherd-hound mix thing that could have chewed me up like a frisbee, stopped, sat down, and started whining. Good dog, I said. Good girl. As long as she didn't have me by the nads, she was a good girl. In a couple of minutes, this thing was wagging her tail, let me pet her and whining like she's Lassie and Timmy's caught in the well. She had just been playing with me, and I'd been too scared to figure it out. That's when I felt her ribs. The damn thing was starving. Poor bitch probably weighed about 50 pounds, should have weighed 100. Oh, man, you poor dog, you poor thing. Tell you what, thing, I'm going to get you up real slow here, and if we can't get you something to eat, we'll feed you Jack. How's that? She hadn't met Jack yet, but seemed to think it was a good idea. Petting the dog, I got up slowly and peeked into the room. All of a sudden, my comments didn't seem too funny anymore. There was blood splattered on the wall back in the corner, and underneath that, a woman's body. The first thing I thought of was that she had been about my age. It's always healthy to go identifying yourself with the dead. There was a hole on the left side of her head and blood all over the closet floor. The right side of her head didn't look quite the same shape it was supposed to. She'd shot herself. The gun was still in her hand. Tiny little Beretta thing. It wasn't the head wound that made me sick. It was what had once been her breasts and the flesh missing around her ribs. What the dog had been eating to survive. Even in death, she provided for her pet. I threw up everything again. Then I leaned over in the corner and threw up nothing for a while. While I was through retching, I skipped the whole commando raid thing and just walked directly downstairs through the house to the back door. If anybody had been home, they'd already had plenty of time to hide and plot, and I was going to need help anyway. The thing followed me into the kitchen and bounded down the back staircase like we were going outside to play. I locked her in the basement, thinking maybe she wasn't such a good dog after all. Then I opened the door for Jack and Wes. It's clear, I said. I don't think I realized I was laughing. I don't think anyone alive is in here. Bodies, huh? Jack said like I'd discovered the apartment had cockroaches. Until then, I don't think I'd realized the trauma that he and Wesley, hell, everybody had been through. Yeah, I said, smiling. Just keep smiling. I told Jack and Wes about the body on the second floor. Wes volunteered to go up and search the third floor with me, or I don't think I would have done it. The two of us went back through the house, just making sure nobody was there. I don't think they trusted me as a point man quite yet, and I can't blame them. 
I closed the door to the second floor bedroom and never went back in. Later, Wes and I slacked off sitting downstairs on the kitchen floor while Jack went up and got the little pistol. She had saved the last shell for herself. Well, we finally got a decent gun. Looks like a twenty-two, but I didn't see any ammo. We'll look around for it later, Jack said. Too bad we could have used it on the dog. Put it out of its misery, I said from my spot on the tile. I suppose we could just leave it locked up downstairs. Hey, just a dog, Wes said. He's just doing what he can to stay alive. Yeah, well, you didn't just have him gnawing on your testicles for lunch now, did you? Besides, how the hell are we going to feed it? I kind of wanted to hold on to the small supply of human flesh I had left on me. Food hasn't really been that much of a problem, Holt, Jack said, unloading his pack on the floor. We can't just leave it locked up down in the basement to starve. Jack was right, but I'd never admit it. Well, well, hey, why don't we just leave Satan's little helper upstairs with the corpse? That is, if you guys think the body's still fresh enough. We took you in, didn't we? Wes said. The dog was just doing what it had to to survive. I'll go down and take a look at him. If he's not too mean, if he wants to, he's going with us. Why can't we just leave it some food and leave, I said. From the looks I got, you would have thought I'd just sent it Snoopy to the electric chair. Okay, but we've all got to agree it's not a mad dog. You guys didn't see the thing. I started, and then I remembered how docile it had been after I stopped panicking. All right, all right, let's go downstairs and look at her. It is a her, I know that much. But if we end up running out of food, I'm eating the dog. I was trying to sound tough. Even the dog knew I was a cream puff. Thanks, Chris. Bipolar Express puts us into a funny, scary, brutal world that, on top of all that, rings hideously true. Yeah, it's available now on Kindle. I hope you'll give it a try. And that is it for the week. Oh, by the way, next week is special. It's Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention. And because it is here in Chicago, I am the designated up-picker for the Hope for Hugo Award that the mothership hopes to snag. If snagged, this would be its second. Through the magic of the Internet machine, however, I will be here in the nook next Friday, as usual, as well as at the con. So make sure you're on time. And we will see you then. And now... Up and doing, bright and chipper for your walk home, each of you to your separate ways and separate beds, maybe. The game up the street, oh, it's long over, but the memories linger, yes. And the blue people, oh, the blue people, they're still out there. But you'll get by them. You'll make it home. You'll head to your rooms, to your bed, and in the dark... You'll remember, you'll remember your youth, the sun, and pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about... 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Out the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.